All right, if y'all would, open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, we are, uh, if you're visiting with us, we're going through a sermon series called uh, Seeing Jesus in All of Scripture. And uh, because what we believe here in RUF is that it's not just in the New Testament where we can see Jesus, but it's also all in the Old Testament as well. And uh, tonight, uh, we're going to be talking about the Ten Commandments. And there's one pastor who once said this, that preaching is when a preacher preaches as a dying man to dying men. We must never forget that preaching is always an urgent message. Because we never know when we're going to die. And sometimes that makes proclaiming hard truths a little bit easier because we all must know that we're going to meet our Maker. And if I have one hope for you tonight, it's this. Is that you would see that Jesus is your only hope. But He's not just your only hope, He's your best hope. And it's Him alone who can save us. Exodus 20, we'll read verses 1 through 21. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's uh, wife or his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that's your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the Flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us or we'll die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, it is your message. 
It is your timeless word, even in in changing times. You've always remained the same. Would you continue yet again to speak your truth to us? But we don't just ask for that. We ask also that you would give us listening ears. For we know that none of us, including the one preaching, we will not leave here the same. We ask out of your grace and out of your mercy that we would leave positively not the same. Help us not to harden our hearts. Help us not to shut off our ears. And when we see our sin, help us to run to the sin bearer. Holy Spirit, work that in our hearts. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. When you go to a hotel, often you see in the bathroom on the counter by the big mirror on the wall, what do you see? You often see the smaller round mirror with uh, the lights around the edge. It's the mirror that you would use whenever you're going to do makeup or really look at your face. And often when you look in that mirror and you turn on the light, well, you see your skin's a little bit more dirty, a little bit more flawed than you thought. And when you look into that mirror and when you see the flaws of your face, the flaws that even the most beautiful people would see, You can either do one of two things. You can either ignore it, or you can try to solve the problem. You see, it's disturbing whenever we see our own flaws. And that's exactly what we do whenever we see our own flaws. We either try to ignore it, or we try to solve the problem. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's our reality. And the Ten Commandments show us that beneath the surface, we have more flaws than we care to realize. And like the mirror, when you see your flaws, you can either ignore them or you can try to solve them. But when you try to solve them, you only make it worse. The question is, can there be any deliverance? Is there any hope out there? And that's what this text answers for for us tonight. There's going to be three principles you're going to see here in this text. First, the commandments reveal God's character. Second, the commandments rebuke man's sinfulness. And third, the commandments require Christ's righteousness. Here would be the one truth. If you can have one sticky little truth that you might remember, it would be this. That your problem reveals a predicament that only a righteous person can resolve. Your problem reveals a predicament that only a righteous person can resolve. First, look at verse 1. It says, And God spoke all these words. Who is it who's speaking? God speaks. And that's important for us to remember because the commandments are first and foremost about God before they're about us. God is showing the Israelites who He is. And that's still for us what the commandments are doing. And in order to understand the commandments, it'd be helpful to understand them a little bit more in their original context. After God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, he gave them his commandments. But why did he do that? Well, think about it. If you were an Israelite and you have been living in Egypt under slavery for so long, as a matter of fact, your people had lived in slavery for 400 years, that was the only lifestyle you knew. But now you've been delivered now you've been, you've been rescued, but the question is, how are y'all going to live? What are you going to value? 
How are you going to treat each other? That's why God gives his commands. He gives his commands to them. And notice that he gives 10 commands. I just held up five. It's 10. Notice that he gives 10 commands. Well, if you're an Israelite, this would also be really significant. Because 10 is a significant number for for Hebrew language, meaning complete. It means this. That these commands are complete and there needs to be no addition to them and definitely no subtraction from them. That when God is proclaiming these 10 words, he is saying this is fixed. In that context back in that day in the ancient Near East, uh, you would have what was called the suzerain and the vassal. The suzerain was... Uh, the higher authority. He was the power. He was someone who would rule. And the vassal were people who had either been conquered or they had been delivered by the suzerain. And in those times back then, the suzerain would enter into a covenant with the vassals and he would say, look, here is who I am. And then here's how you can live in light of who I am. Well, that's exactly how the commandments are set up, right? Look at it. Look at verse two. God says first, here's who I am. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he gets into the Ten Commandments. And once again, it reminds us that what God is saying is, look, here's how you live in light of me. These aren't just arbitrary rules. And here is also the thing that would happen in a suzerain and vassal treaty. is this. If you obey these rules and if you obey these stipulations, you will be blessed, mightily blessed. But if you disobey these, and if you fall short even on one, you will be cursed. That's what it's saying. It's a very serious moment. And when Yahweh, that's what it means when the Lord is in all caps, it's God's covenant-keeping name. When Yahweh begins to speak about his commandments, he starts where he should start. Look at verse 3. He starts with saying, you shall have no other gods before me. What is the saying about Yahweh? See, unlike the times when they were in Egypt, Egypt had multiple different gods. And they worshipped all these different gods. But Yahweh is saying, there's only one true God and that's me. Don't live, don't go back to the way things were in Egypt. Only worship me because I'm the only true God. Every other God is no God at all. And so even though the people around you might worship multiple gods, you are to worship only one. Look at verse 4, commandment number (laughs) 2. Second, Yahweh says that as the only true God, he must be worshipped in a certain way. That, that That would make sense. Because no one's like him, we should worship him the way he tells us to worship him rather than trying to worship the way we want to or how we want to picture him. You see... We don't make God in our image because he has made us in his image. It's us who are supposed to be molded to him rather than us trying to mold him to us. He's totally unique. And when we create images and likenesses of him, it will only lead us astray. Commandment number three. Yahweh says his name is is above every name. Look at verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. 
name is also uh, uh, portraying someone's character. Your name told a story about yourself. And so what Yahweh is saying here is this, is that when you think of my name, you must have the highest thoughts of me. That's why you need to honor it. You see, (laughs) Yahweh's name was so pure, so powerful, so holy, that his name must be above every other name. Commandment number four. Yahweh says that he has a pattern for the way we're meant to live. When he, you see it in verses 8 through 11, when he created the world, he, he did it in six 24-hour days and then he rested. But he didn't need to rest because he never gets tired, but he rested to give us a pattern for how to live. And so he's saying, look, I've made you to be hard workers, but I know what you need. I know ultimately you need me. So on the seventh day, I want you to be a completely different day. And I want you to worship me. And I want you to soak me in because I am the one who you need. Commandment number five. Yahweh says that he is the ultimate authority. And as the ultimate authority, he establishes authority on this earth. He desires an orderly society. And that's why parents, especially godly parents, are a good gift to us. But when we see authority not live in light of who God is, or when they abuse their authority... We don't put the blame on God. It's just them not living up to his standards. That rule is good. Order and authority is good. Commandment number six. Yahweh says that we should not murder because he is life. He's the one who brings all things into existence and he sustains all things. Sin brings death. Yahweh cannot sin. He can't even tempt you to sin. He is life. And that means that we are to promote life. Commandment number seven. You shall not commit adultery. Why should we not commit adultery? Because Yahweh is holy. He's pure. He's spotless. He does not abandon us. He is fully always dedicated to us. He never ceases to love his people. He isn't selfish. Commandment number eight. Yahweh tells us that we should not steal because he gives to us abundantly. And he gives us every good gift that we need. He gives everything we need. He's given everything we have. And rather than stealing, this commandment is showing us, Yahweh is showing us that we should depend on him because it's worth it. Commandment number nine. Yahweh tells us not to lie because he is truth. He cannot lie. He cannot even withhold truth because he is truth. Commandment number 10. Yahweh tells us not to covet Covet meaning to over-desire something. In other words, we're not to over-desire something because he is the one who can meet all of our desires. Indeed, God did not need to create anything. But for all eternity, he has been satisfied with himself. And if God can satisfy himself, then he can satisfy you and me. That's what it means. The commandments first and foremost reveal his glory, and who he is. What do these mean? 
Imagine, imagine you have an electric car, a purely electric car, and that car is fully charged and you take that car out for a spin and you can go so many different places. I remember there used to be an old Prius commercial where they were kind of making fun of the O.J. Simpson car chase. And these, you, you know what I'm talking about. They were driving so slow, but they were driving forever. And the, the cops just could never stop because the car would never stop. Well, eventually, if you never charge up the electric car, it will die out. Eventually, it will. You see, if God is life, and everything that makes life, life, then when you try to run away from God and not live life according to His ways, you will die out. You were born into this world spiritually dead. And the more you run away from God, you will experience that death ripple into all of your life. And you'll start to see it emotionally, mentally, relationally, creationally, and physically. Funerals. At the end of the day, when we see someone who is dead, it reminds us that there is a curse. You see, when people reject God, when societies reject God, they're not just breaking rules. They're living what's called ungodly. And the irony there is that we were made to live godly. And so when we say no to God, we are essentially also saying no to us. Your problem, your problem reveals a predicament that only a righteous person can resolve. The commandments are first and foremost about God. They reveal his character. And because they reveal God's character, because they show us who he is, then we can understand our sinfulness because the commandments also rebuke man's sinfulness. (laughs) Excuse me. As Yahweh, if you're an Israelite, as you would have heard Yahweh proclaim these commandments, you would have had two thoughts. For one, he's holy. There's no one like him. And as you would hear these one by one, it wouldn't just be so loud physically for you because we see that in the setting of the mountain but it would ring even louder in your conscience because each command he would give is that you would realize how different you are from him. And it's not just that, oh, I'm different and this is just a thing of difference. This is what it would show you. You're a sinner. That's bad news. The Ten Commandments still reveal to us what our sin is. And that's what we need to see. And that's what I want to show you. And it's going to dig deep. It's meant to. Commandment number one, we see that we have all tried to be God rather than honoring God as God. We run to other religions, we try to believe God doesn't exist, or we might believe in God, but we don't believe his word. We fail to honor God as the one true and living God in the way he deserves to be honored. Commandment number two, instead of honoring God, In the way he has revealed himself to us, we've decided to mold him into our image. Even in churches, we try to worship God in a way that makes us feel comfortable rather than by his word. We might not bow down to physical idols today, but we also have our own idols. And 
In your handout, you'll see in the middle four of the most popular idols and how they work out in your life. Comfort, approval, control, power. We also have idols today. We also, to break this commandment, we change God's word to fit our agenda. Just look at how in our society today we say, well, when God's word says homosexuality, that's not what the writers meant when we say that today. So we don't really need to listen to it. We try to make God look more like us rather than letting him be who he is. Commandment number three. We break this third commandment, the commandment to honor God's name, when we throw around his name like it doesn't mean much. We break this commandment when we use ungodly language and profanity, even in intramurals. We break this commandment when we don't promote God's character. When we as Christians drink when we're underage or even when we're legal to drink, yet we drink to public drunkenness. And we definitely break this commandment when we truly live like a hypocrite and we don't take God seriously. Commandment number four. We break the fourth commandment when we treat church like it's optional. And something is wrong with our hearts when we consistently go to church and we can barely focus on a 30-minute sermon, but we're glued to our TV after church for six straight hours watching the NFL or Netflix. Something's wrong with us. The Sabbath is meant to be a day that belongs to the Lord in its entirety. It's meant to be a day of worship, of fellowship with believers, of evangelism, and of service. It doesn't mean we can't do anything fun or relaxing. It's not saying that. But it is meant to be a day that is different and that is dedicated to the Lord from top to bottom. Commandment number five. We're rebuked of our sinfulness whenever we see how disobedient and disrespectful we are to our parents. And I'm not talking about disobeying our parents when they're trying to get us to do something sinful. Never obey someone when they're trying to get you to do something sinful. But when we disobey and disrespect our our parents and authority for our own selfish gain, we break this commandment. We're disrespectful to our professors, our coaches, our pastors, our supervisors, and our bosses. The fifth commandment means that we are to promote honor, not just not disrespect people, but to promote honor for godly authority. It means we're to promote honor for authority by godly obedience and proper order. Commandment number six. (laughs) We are rebuked. Goodness there. We're rebuked for our sinfulness when we murder and harm others. Genocide, terrorism, and abortion are sin. Hating people in your heart is sin. Harboring bitterness, ungodly anger, judgmentalism is all murdering people in your heart. Prejudice, favoritism, and racism are sin. Not treating people with compassion is sin. Not being patient, not being loving, not being gentle, not being truthful. Or how about this? Not forgiving others. When we promote a society that does not forgive, but only and constantly digs up the past and dangles it over people's head, but we never forgive people, that is promoting a sinful society. 
promoting a society where more unnecessary and unbiblical division occurs rather than unity, forgiveness, love, and mercy. Commandment number seven. We see how sinful we are by having sex outside of marriage. When we change our sexual identity from how God has made us, that is sinful. When we touch someone inappropriately before or outside of marriage, and that means this, that you can't just say, well, at least we didn't go the whole way. Homosexuality, bisexuality, pornography, bestiality, sexual affairs, emotional affairs, dressing in such a way so that people will lust over us and posting pictures on social media to make people lust over us. Some of our Netflix shows and movies and TV shows where we're watching sex, promoting unbiblical sexual desires and lifestyles such as the LGBTQ movement, lusting after someone in your own heart, even if you don't live out on it. Just read the Sermon on the Mount. But also this, when we don't promote biblical marriage and the faithfulness of the spouse, Commandment number eight. God's law exposes our sinfulness and how we unlawfully take what doesn't belong to us. Cheating in class, fraud, embezzlement, robbery, extortion, and even time stealing from your employer. We see our sin exposed whenever we promote and endorse unlawful and unbiblical taking of possessions. And we see our sin and how we don't protect the weak. And when we don't promote gracious and keyword free giving. Selfishness is sinful and so is unlawfully demanding from others. Commandment number nine. Our sin is exposed when we uh, see how much we gossip, lie, slander. When we withhold truth from other people or we only tell certain portions of the truth. Spreading rumors, flattering others for our self-gain, exaggerating to make ourselves look good. It's also seen when we pass an unjust sentence on someone. It's also seen whenever we're too quick to make judgments about something when we don't have all the evidence. When we don't praise our neighbors when they do good when we whisper about others to hurt their reputation, when we go on a sin hunt with people only rather than a grace hunt, when we only criticize others or at least just the majority of our time is meant in criticizing others rather than finding ways to encourage them, when we don't tell the truth and when we fail to promote positively grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Commandment number 10. Tenth Commandment shows how sinful materialism is. Our over-desire to be beautiful or to be sexy or to have a certain job is coveting. And definitely our jealousy over someone else's car, their house, their girlfriend, their boyfriend, their grades, their opportunities in life, or their family. Coveting is also treating money as your God. And coveting is also not trusting God and being content with your life. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 48, this, and he's not joking. You therefore must be perfect just as your heavenly father is perfect. That is the standard. 
James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in only one point of it has become guilty of all of it. And simply what James is saying is this, that when you notice even one thing in here in which you fall short of, you better believe you've broken all of it. Martin Luther says this, It is Satan's work to prevent men from recognizing their sinfulness. It is also his work to keep them thinking that they can do everything that they are told. If you think that you're not that sinful or you think that you can obey these laws, you better believe that is the work of Satan. What makes us even more angry with God and what makes us even more angry at his word and the people who proclaim it is that the word doesn't just tell us we're sinful. The word tells us we don't even have the ability to make our problem change. We hate being told that we are not enough and that we can't do it. And that's exactly what the Bible says. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. No one. Ephesians 2, 1 doesn't only just say that we've sinned, it means that we're dead. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Here's the question. What can dead people do? All you can do is rot and smell. We can't even fix our own problem. It's doubly bad. And our society hates this. We hate it and we try to cancel people who actually proclaim this message. And we hate it so much that we not only try to cancel the truth, but we also try to explain it away. One of the seminary professors and preacher Calvin Miller says this, Thanks to advancements in psychology, there is no longer any real sin lurking about and therefore no real sinners to reform. Look, there's a lot of great things that psychology has done. I love counseling, and there's a lot of, I've got a good insight from psychology, but there's a lot more hurt that it does. Because it loves to explain away our problem, and it loves to only make us sufferers. And a lot of the major influences in today's study of psychology are people who literally set out to try to destroy Christianity. You see, you might try to forget the law, but the law doesn't forget you. You might try to neglect your sin problem, but your sin will not neglect you. You might try to explain things away, but God doesn't buy it. To be sure, are we sufferers? Yeah, we're sufferers. Of course we are. Even if we just live life in this room with just this group, we're sinners all in the room with each other. Sinners sin against sinners. We're all sufferers, but we're not only sufferers. And as RUF campus minister at Arkansas, Austin Royal As he says, this is very good. Sinners tend to respond to sin by sinning. Really horrible things might have happened to you. And it's true. And they weren't your fault. But often the way in which we respond to those things is with sin. But the question is this, what are we to do? Here's two things you don't do. One is that you only try to feel bad. Even unbelievers can feel bad about their own sins and their own mistakes. Even Judas felt bad about what he had done. 
To be a Christian does not mean to merely feel bad about your sin. And when sometimes churches only put the emphasis on making sure you only just feel bad about your sin, but they don't lead you to someone, lead you to someone who takes care of that sin, you need to beware. Because God is in the business not just of making us feel bad about our sin, but it's like when you touch a hot stove and when you feel that it's hot, you don't just say, ouch, that really hurts. Let me just feel really good about feeling how bad that hurts. No, you take it off the stove and you run to a doctor that can heal you. You don't just sit there and wallow in how bad your sin is. Here's the second wrong approach. You definitely don't try to make your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. I was cooking... It's a very southern meal. Steak and grits earlier this week. And it was good. Oh, come on now. And as I was cooking the steaks, I put some butter in the pan and I had this spoon. I was splashing the butter up on the steaks. Come on now. Splashing, splashing the butter up on the steaks. Now here's what I did. I took that same spoon that was in that crazy hot butter and I dipped it into the much cooler grits because I was going to taste the grits. And when I put it in my mouth, it just burned the inside of my mouth. The grits didn't do anything to help. Here's the thing. You can try to cover up the outside of your life and do all the good deeds you want. You can try to have a phenomenal devotional life and post it on Instagram. You can try to go and serve in other countries. You can try to do all these different things, but it doesn't change the fact that you are a sinner. Matter of fact, when you try to do that, you end up being burned more. George Whitfield said that we could sooner climb to the moon on a rope of sand than we could be saved by our own good works. That means that a good reputation and doing certain things or just staying away from certain things will not save us. God does not save you because you're good enough and God does not save you because you feel bad enough. We don't have any ability. We don't have any hope. We don't have any chance of saving ourselves, And that's why Jesus came. Amen? Come on now. We've been waiting a while. This is why Jesus came. And this is what makes the gospel amazing. Because Jesus came to die for real sinners with real sins. Jesus came to die for people actually in this room who have real sin. We try to pretend like we don't really have that big of sin. Or when we had some big sin, it was only in the past and nothing we struggle with today. Jesus came to save real sinners with real sin. That will preach now. Come on, you're going to get me going. The only way you can be delivered from the law bearing over you is if Jesus Christ lifts it up and takes it away. The problem... Your problem, my problem, reveals a predicament that only a righteous person can resolve, and that's what Jesus does. The commandments don't just reveal God's character. It doesn't just rebuke man's sinfulness, but the commandments require Christ's righteousness. Amen? Come on now, we're going to get going. Look, when Adam, who was our first covenant representative, it did not take that long for that man to make the whole world tore up from the floor up. He sinned. And so we need a new representative. That's who Jesus is. That's what Romans 5, Romans 5, the second half, is all about. How Jesus does what Adam couldn't do. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is the perfect Adam who came to obey God perfectly. You see, here's the truth that the Bible teaches. You are saved by works. You are. Just not yours. 
You are saved by works, but just not your works. You're saved by Jesus' works. There's only two options for you. You will be judged by works. The question is, will you try to stand in confidence for your works or will you run to Jesus? And let me tell you something. You don't stand a chance if you think your works can match up to his. Jesus' works given to us, that is the grace of God. Jesus perfectly honored God as God. He perfectly worshiped God the way God had revealed himself. He perfectly honored God's name. He perfectly obeyed the Sabbath. He perfectly honored his sinful parents and earthly authority. He never hated anyone from ungodly anger, but rather he perfectly loved people. He never lusted in his heart. He was perfectly pure. He never stole anything. Rather, he gave himself away. He never told a lie, but he was perfectly the truth. He was always perfectly trusting in his father, and he was content in every single circumstance, even on the cross. That's a savior. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. When Mozart was a child prodigy, many people would look at him and they would say, there's no way such young of a kid can make such incredible, beautiful music. They thought that his father was making it for him. And so they put him to the test very often. And every time he passed the test. But here's the thing. Mozart's got nothing on Jesus. Jesus was tempted every single day, every single moment of his whole life by the world and Satan, even in some very heightened periods as you see in Matthew in chapter 4 when Jesus is tempted for 40 days in the wilderness, but especially on that cross, especially in Gethsemane. And he passed the test every time. Jesus not only didn't just live out on sin, he didn't even have a sinful desire in his heart. He was totally and utterly perfect. As Horatius Bonar said, Jesus' righteousness was the only perfect thing which was ever presented to God in man's behalf. And so peculiar was this perfection that it might be used by man in his transactions with God as if it were his own. Do you know what he's saying? That as Jesus Christ was God in our flesh, he presented his righteousness to God and it was the only perfect thing ever to be presented to God. But you know what that means for you and me? That if we run to Jesus, God will look at that and it will look as if it is our own. That's how personal it is for you. Jesus' righteousness given to you. And it's not just that Jesus is perfect, but he is God. It's not as if just Adam was perfect. But when Jesus is perfect, it means that as God is infinite and infinite in worth, that when Jesus is perfect, his perfection is infinite in worth. That's why one man can cover a multitude of people. That's why if you're a Christian, we will be there with all the tribes, tongues, and languages that will be far beyond any concert or football game or whatever parade or whatever people that we could see out to the horizon there will be so many people there all covered by one man jesus christ amen Amen. what the gospel is is in second corinthians 5 21 where it says this for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of god here's what that means when you come to jesus christ you no longer own what's yours. Jesus does. Isn't that awesome? When you sin, 
Jesus looks at you and he says, give me that. But you know what also happens? Not only does Jesus take away all of your sins, you own his righteousness. It is yours. That's what clothes you. You see, that means we have a brand new identity. That means in Jesus Christ, we have forgiveness. We have cleansing. And now we have the power to be transformed into his image. And all of this is received by faith alone, not by any works. God's wrath is no longer over you, dear Christian. Sin no longer defines you. Death no longer stings you. God has already given you his final last day judgment, and he declares you righteous because of Jesus Christ alone. Amen? And if God has given you his end of the time judgment and he's given it upon you right now, then that means that nothing that happens between now and the end of times can take away that judgment. He's already taken all of your sins into account, past, present, and future. That's your righteousness. When Jesus said on the cross in John 19, 30, this is one of the most amazing verses in all of scripture. When he said, it is finished, he meant all of it. That's why... If we want to grow, we need to understand the order of the commandments. Look at verse 2. Notice what God says before he gives the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then he gives the Ten Commandments. In other words, God's saying this. Relate to me in light of me delivering you. And when you understand this deliverance, when you embrace the gospel, then you will have the power to be able to live like Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that the more we look to Jesus in, in one degree of glory to the next, we will be transformed into that same image. Do you want to know how you grow as a Christian? Continually looking to see that Jesus Christ is your righteousness. That has power. And it makes you slowly but surely to live more like him. That's what the gospel is saying. You can't make this up. As Horatius Bonar said, <laughs> our father saw that this truth was the real basis for all spiritual life. In other words, this, if you want to grow in Christianity, study the fact that Jesus is your righteousness. And this is good news for some of you who struggle with spiritual anxiety. Because some of you, I know for a fact, and even more so, that you really struggle with spiritual anxiety and you're constantly running the film in your head, in your conscience of the ways in which you've sinned and that's the only thing you look at. But my dear friend, Jesus Christ did not save you so that you would only and constantly review your sins. He saved you so that you would take your sins to him. He saved you so that the majority of your faith would be looking to him and trusting that he is righteous. Stop doubting and look to Jesus. And when you struggle with doubt, say, but that's my standing. That's my righteousness. And it never changes. Amen. Amen. Romans 5.20 says this, where sin abounds, grace increases all the more. And so when you see your sin, know that the grace in Jesus Christ is more. When David Letterman was in school, he was a very average student. And he created a scholarship uh, called the Average Student Scholarship for just C, you know, B, C, D students. Because in our world, we know that, uh, at least with work, that academics isn't always everything. It definitely certainly helps, but it's not everything. But in God's court, perfection is everything. 
You will not be saved unless you're perfect. But there is someone who can save you. And there is a Savior who does not care how gruesome your sin is. He says, bring it all to me and leave nothing out. And he will cover you and he will save you and he will always celebrate over you. And that's what you can have in Jesus Christ. All I'm telling you is this. Believe. Believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's how your predicament will be solved. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to embrace the good news. When we see our sin, when we see how far short of your glory we have fallen, help us to run to him who is your glory, who is your righteousness. And as we run to him, that we might then be able to obey your commandments. But help us to constantly look to him, not resting in our works, but resting in his. Jesus, hold yourself up before our very eyes tonight. We ask all this in your name. Amen.